0: Right, Good evening, night service. It's a pleasure being here once again. It's um, one of my favourite things to do and I'm just really glad to be here. And I just want to welcome those who are online as well and say that you are so welcome and we're so glad to have you. Um, Before I do anything else, I would really like to pray and commit this time to Jesus once again. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for the message that I believe that you have given me to speak. I ask that you would release your spirit on all listening that our ears would be open to hear and our eyes open to see the wisdom that we find in your word and everything about you. Please use this time to reveal truth that brings repentance, freedom and goodness. May we leave tonight having truly connected with you. So I've named this, I mean, this is Hidden People of the Bible is a series that I'm um, joining in with. Uh, but I've given it a sort of subtitle: "One King's a Game of Thrones." In brackets, haha, ha. it's a joke. You see, there are lots of kings and kings. So over the past few years, I've become quite interested in politics, how it works, what's going on in that realm, and how it affects and impacts our culture and society. And over the past 10 years or so, I feel like the world has just turned upside down and changed really rapidly. And engaging with people talking about it and talking about what's operating in that space and who believes what and, and where these beliefs lead in regards to the law and to media and that whole sphere has been a way to feel like I kind of have some kind of grip on just what is going on in this age. And it encourages me that It helps me to think of ways that we might stand up against some of the things that I see in our world which I feel are really disturbing, unjust and wrong. There's nothing more cathartic than listening to somebody articulate something that you think in a better way with more education and more facts. It's really nice to listen to someone say what you think already but better. It helps me to feel sane that I'm not the only one to feel like that. But I noticed a problem as I spent more time listening to different commentaries. One minute I'd be listening to a particular individual who would be saying something and I'd be agreeing with them, yes, yes, that's right, you've got it right there. And then they'd start saying something else and I would say, "Oh, hold up, Oh, you want to say that? I don't know, I don't know, back away, <laughs> clean up the search history. <laughs> Um, And I found that it was really difficult to find somebody that that didn't happen with at one stage. I'd be listening to them and I'd be on board with them and the next minute they'd say something that I felt like just really was against my spirit, just not what I agreed with. So I found myself feeling like there was no political party, there was no opinion that I felt like I could really lean into and feel like they were showing me the way, (laughs) except I was very, very attracted to this idea that maybe that was possible, that there was some politician that just knew it all and I could join in with them. So how on earth are we meant to operate in such a system? I found myself feeling rather helpless, not knowing how I could possibly engage with these big ideas that are really important, but without being encouraged to hate someone and vilify them. I know that Jesus doesn't want that for me, so what do I do? I regularly read the uh, the Bible with my son at bedtime. And while I was in this sort of seeking and frustrated frame of mind, I found myself reading the story of two kings in Israel whose inability to empathise with one another tore their nation apart. To set the scene, we probably all know something about King Solomon, son of David, a man who was most certainly anointed by God, given great resources to build God's temple and to wield an amazing level of wisdom and prosperity. Solomon seemed like the realized hope of Israel, a king so wise that people from all around the the known world came just to listen to him. You can read about Queen Queen of Sheba's response visiting him in 1 Kings 10. Solomon was blessed with wealth that others could hardly imagine until they saw it with their own eyes. To put it into perspective, it's estimated that his wealth wealth was about 10 times that of Elon Musk's is today. That comes in our money to about $2.1 trillion. Solomon was raised in the knowledge of the one God of Israel and specifically called to finally build his temple in Jerusalem, his father David's dream. But many of us will know the rather sad end that Solomon came to. He married lots of wives for political reasons that believed different things, and in the end, their beliefs had an impact on Solomon more than he had an impact on them. He ended up sacrificing to idols like Ashtoreth, who uh, was connected with sexual immorality in a a few different kinds of ways, and Molech, who was connected to uh, the sacrifice of children by fire. A culture which is sacrificing to this or any kind of idol would not be pleasing to God. Solomon ended his life with the knowledge that all is wasted and meaningless, unless we hear God and obey him, as you can read in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon also used slavery to achieve his ends. And so he leaves Israel in a state where they're limping along without right standing with God. They've been actively led into disobeying God, with Solomon in control. He ends his reign with wealth dissipated and stability fading. And so here enters my first of two somewhat hidden people in the Bible, and his name is Jeroboam. Now, keep your hair on, because my other person in the Bible is called Rehoboam. He is Solomon's son. Jeroboam is not. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam is not. Stay with me. Jeroboam, not Solomon's son, was apparently a very hard-working man who worked for Solomon. And it says, and this is in my first slide, in 1 Kings 11:28. 28. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he kept him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. After that, we read that the prophet Abijah, who, if we remember the role of the prophets, was to speak God's word directly to the people, he tears up his cloak into 12 pieces, and he tells Jeroboam that every piece of his torn cloak represents a part of Israel, one of the 12 tribes, and that out of those 12 pieces, 10 would be under his control. Now, this would have been mind-blowing at the time. It represented a political rupture of Israel beyond anything in living memory. Just think about what it would be if Tasmania and Victoria looked at the rest of Australia and said, ''We'd like to be our own country, please.'' And then put up a giant wall and said, stay out. That was the impact. This was huge. Abijah, the prophet, continues to speak to Jeroboam on behalf of God in chapter 30, uh, verse 37. However, as for you, I will take you and will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do what I command you and walk in obedience to me... And do what is right in my eyes by by obeying my decrees and commands as David, my servant, did. I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Now this also is huge. David's um, legacy would end... well, not end... But it would culminate in Jesus, in the line of David. The Messiah was going to be born into his royal house. So how could it be that Jeroboam had a promise to say that his dynasty would be as blessed? We can't even imagine what God might have done had things gone that way. But sadly, we'll we'll find out. Next thing we hear is that in King, Solomon has left the throne to his son. Oh, sorry, showing again how far... Solomon had fallen from following God with his whole heart. Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam when he finds out about this prophecy, when he should have been really participating, if that was God's will. But Jeroboam runs away and stays away in Egypt until Solomon dies. And the next thing we hear in Kings is that Solomon has left the throne to his son, Rehoboam, and my other hidden biblical person. Now, Rehoboam is a son like his father. He's been raised very much more like a pharaoh than a king like David. And when you add Rehoboam to Jeroboam, you spell trouble. Rehoboam goes to the city of Shechem to finally be appointed as king formally. And Jeroboam takes the opportunity to come home from Egypt because he doesn't have to stay away from Solomon anymore. And he's obviously popular because it says in 1 Kings 12:3 that they, the Israelites, sent for Jeroboam. And he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we'll serve you. So in other words, the people are fed up with the cruelty and harshness of Solomon's last years, and they want to see Rehoboam lead with mercy, like a king of Israel should. At this point, this is a peaceful protest. Rehoboam asked them to come back in three days and he would give them an answer. And in the meantime, he asked the elders who served his father Solomon, old hands in politics at leadership, what they would advise. And they replied in uh, chapter 12, verse 7, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Rehoboam... Solomon's son, doesn't want to go with this advice. The Bible says he rejects it. And looking for a second opinion, he goes to his mates, the ones that he grew up with. They were the ones probably expecting that they were going to be getting a lot of perks from now on. And he asked them uh, in verse 9, What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Well, the young young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Sick burn. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. (laughs) Can I just pause for a moment and just... You know, I give a bit of a, a question of, what do you think? Who should he be listening to right now? Just a bit of a poll. And what do you think was more attractive for him to be hearing? Being a servant to his people or wielding his new power in force? Rehoboam, son of Solomon, the wise, legal king of Israel, he goes with the scorpions. In verse 12, it says, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men. And he said, my father made your yoke heavier. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And after that, chaos. The people see red. They will not cooperate any longer. When all of Israel saw the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. So now we have a northern kingdom and a southern one. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, ruled a small part, the south, whose capital was Jerusalem a city of enormous holy significance to all the Israelites, and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Now, Jeroboam took over leadership of the northern kingdoms of Israel, basically everybody else, whose capital would one day be Samaria. Okay, put a pin in that. That's important. God's people were torn like the prophet's robes. Their unity was in tatters. At this point, it seemed like a pretty clear-cut situation. Jeroboam on God's side, anointed, given leadership of the greater part of Israel. Rehoboam, bad guy, only left with what he has due to God's remaining loyalty to David, now long dead. But wait and see what happens next. Rehoboam has gone to Jerusalem, ready to fight for the kingdom, but it says in uh, Kings, I think, 13, verse 2, but the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. That's interesting. Rehoboam, who had been raised more like a pharaoh by his dad Solomon than like a good God-fearing king like David, heard from God and actually obeyed him. How interesting. Back in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam was thinking to himself, ah, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and they will return to King Rehoboam. It says in verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Don't, I added that bit. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they weren't Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month like the festival held in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. What a disaster. As if they hadn't learned from Exodus, the golden calves are not a good idea. God had told the people of Israel that priests were meant to be Levites, but the Levites were back in Jerusalem and Jeroboam was scared of Jerusalem. And so he would rather lead them into a new religion that he was making up as he went along, basically, rather than actually dealing with trying to obey God on his own terms. He didn't trust God to look after the the blessing that he'd promised Jeroboam. He tried to disobey to keep it, and in trying to keep it, he lost it. Now it could never be his legacy was not going to be like that of King David. He had disobeyed God before he really even started, and he'd failed as soon as he'd begun. And from here on, Jeroboam's life turns to misery. He has shown signs from a man of God that God's not happy with him, but even after seeing them, he doesn't listen. And things get worse and worse, both to Jeroboam and all the people around him, even the prophets. But God was still trying to reach him even then. But it seemed like Jeroboam's evil had completely taken him over. The end of the story is a sad one for him. Eventually, his son gets sick. He sends his wife to talk to Abijah, the prophet who had spoken such words of hope in the beginning to him. But this time the prophet told him, unsurprisingly, that his time as God's appointed one was over. That disaster was coming to the house of Jeroboam. And when Jeroboam's wife, carrying this terrible message, comes home, she crosses the threshold of her doorway and as her foot sets into her house, her son is dead. And what about Rehoboam? It says of him in verse 25 In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carries off the treasure of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields that Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Although Solomon's last remnants of wealth and power were gone, the gold stolen, replaced by bronze, unity turned into discord, Rehoboam seemed to fare better than Jeroboam. Even so, he didn't know anything but civil war for his whole reign. So why are we talking about this horrible story? (laughs) It strikes me that seeing these two kings as goodies and baddies is a bit unhelpful. Each leader was faced with opportunities that they squandered to be leaders, the leaders that God wanted to be, them to be. And each one had moments of goodness flash by in their lives when they did do the make the right choice. Jeroboam had everything going for him, including a good character and a beautiful promise. Rehoboam had a country that was his already, and it was whole, and they were willing to follow him. If only he would treat them with respect. Rehoboam, after failing one opportunity, made a wise choice in the next. He chose not to fight in the direction of God's word through a prophet. He chose peace over conflict the second time around, at least for a season. Jeroboam had the opportunity to serve God and see God bless the people he entrusted to him. But out of fear and a lack of trust that God would work it out, he disobeyed God to keep what he'd been given, and so lost it. And it found its way back to his home. The sin had led them into evil, the whole country, and it ended up with the death of his son. Sin always comes with a price. I take from this situation some pithy truths about politics. Now, I know the danger of speaking about politics from the front of the church, and I'm not going to be telling you who to vote for. Far from it. But it strikes me that in looking at Rehoboam and Jeroboam, we can see a reflection of our own country and our world's operating system the left and the right, this party or that party, conservative, progressive, this way, that way, whose king do you follow, whose side are you on? When we pick a side, we adhere to a certain way of operating. We throw in our lot with a leader and we take on their enemies as our enemies. But what happens if they're both wrong? What happens if they're both corrupt at times, sometimes right, sometimes corrupt, fallible, messy, complicated? like those two Israelite kings. One thing that we can learn from their story is if you have two leaders that claim two separate parts of a whole, a country, a culture, or anything, and you're running in the opposite directions, you get a tear. By picking a side with a human leader who is trying to lead under human wisdom, you will end up following in their mistakes. Humans are human, and even the best of us will make many mistakes in our lives. Only by setting our hearts on Jesus and Jesus alone do we find a true and solid character to follow and he will never be in alignment with someone of this world. Jeroboam noticed something uncomfortable about following God through conflict. That is, sometimes following him will lead us away from one another, but it's never forever. It will eventually lead us back. When we stake out lines, sometimes they are necessary for a time to follow him. But he will always lead us back over those lines because he is a God of unity and he is a God of connection. So there is never a line that we can say with absolute impunity that we will never go across. Jesus is above politics and above activism. He's above the left and the right and everything in between. He challenges us to see each other as individuals, neighbours, the Christian singer Toby Mack said this on his Instagram. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, he was well aware that our neighbor would be different than us. That's kind of the whole point. An author, the Brazilian poet and the writer of The Alchemist, Paulo Coelho, says, the world is changed by your example, not your opinion. So now I'm going to take a jump forward into Luke. Do you remember how the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan begins? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Then he, put, uh, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have." Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man that fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. We all have our own versions of the Samaritans. And something interesting, and I said before that Samaria would be important, because of Jeroboam changing the rules of the way that his kingdom worshipped, he actually made them. It was his choices that created the Samaritans the way they they became, Like like the Jews, but different. They were led by a leader who disobeyed God, and they were the legacy. We all have our own versions of the Samaritans, the people whose view of the world challenges us, our view, who to us are just plain wrong, who might corrupt the world if we left it to them. What does Jesus do to confront this way of thinking? he draws the question right back to the commandments. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love the wrong like you love the right. Care for those whose politics offends you. Go the extra mile to serve those you cannot and may never agree with. It's the absolute opposite of our instincts. It's the very compulsion of God that sends us back to be part of the lives of those who we feel so different to, so at odds with. Jesus doesn't say convince your opponent through arguing that you're right. He says care for them when they've been hurt by a world full of robbers ready to jump on them and leave them for dead. I want you to think about who your Samaritans might be. Whose lifestyle ideas or choices make you angry or upset just to think about them? Pray to Jesus to help you to feel mercy for them and to desire their good. I challenge you to reconsider the role that your point of view has on those that you interact with. How do you speak about political parties and the people in them? How do you talk about your leaders? Behind their backs or to others or on social media? How do you treat people when they express views that you don't like? To make it concrete, consider what you speak about, not just to your friends but to your enemies, be they celebrities, politicians or anybody. Are you merciful, just, and Christ-like in the way that you talk about people who are real human beings, even when you don't know them? And what about your friends? Do all your friends have the same ideas and beliefs that you do? If the answer is yes, try getting to know someone new with different values. I challenge you, find out about them with the intention just to simply know them deeply, not to change their minds. Notice the difference between debating someone and simply holding a different view. How can we be honest about our views without belittling others? Be bold in goodness to those who think your faith is rubbish and you will find they'll notice something about you without having to argue every point with them. Pray for them, encourage them and ask God for wisdom to speak to them in truth and love with a patient spirit. Ask God to help you bless them that is much better and works much better than fighting with them. Now, the last thing that I want you to think about is these kings had bad advice. Jeroboam had advice that said, go and make some golden calves. And he should have said, "Ah, uh, no. Rehoboam said, what about scorpions? Think about who is influencing you. You get to choose. If you don't have somebody that can give you brilliant, lovely advice, there are so many older people in our church who would give you as much as you needed. And I want to think about your wisdom as well. Is there someone who would really benefit from you encouraging them with an upright and beautiful point of view that's in line with Jesus? So to finish it up, In our radical obedience to Jesus, and in our equally radical indiscriminate mercy to those around us, we will help Jesus capture the hearts of those around us. Now, I'm not talking about criminals or abusers. There are times that we need to be safe from people. There are times to protect the innocent. But there are also times when we are neither victim nor judge. And it's those times where God has given us permission to be as gracious and as loving as we wish. And I just want to challenge you that it is easy to love those people who we support, who we agree with. I would like you to find somebody who you disagree with and who your heart wants to fight with, and I want you to serve and love them. What line is Jesus calling you to cross?